0: Well, good morning to you, and good afternoon to some of you, and good evening to some of you in South Africa. I give a special warm greeting to you, since I do know you over there, or down there, up there, wherever you are. I know I got there. Okay, if you can't hear me now. In the series I've been doing on the exclusivity of the church, we have meticulously seen that the church is the Zion and Jerusalem of the end time. I will conclude the series tomorrow, the subject of the new heavens and the new earth. But today, in part eight, in order to give meat in due season... We will consider some specific instruction to Zion, the Israel of God. Where are we today in prophetic sequence? What comes next? And what does it all have to do with Passover in the days of unleavened bread? We've examined ourselves. We've been working at putting sin out now for almost seven days. Is all this examination, all this fighting of sin and carnal nature... Worth the effort? Can we actually make it? Is this all in futility? Is it in vain? Are we striving after wind? Or is it going to work? Matthew 25.5 says they all slumbered and slept. I suppose that is probably one of the most oft-quoted scriptures of the past 12 years. I don't know whether it's in the top ten or not, but it's probably very close. I did. You did. They all slumbered and slept. However, this is not the only warning. Let's look at some scriptures that have the words sleep, awake, and arise in them. We just heard arise as being charged in the New Testament in one place in Richard's sermonette. I, don't, I didn't check the Hebrew on the ones I'll use, but uh, perhaps it means the same thing. But this seems to be a perennial problem in the church. So I want to begin in Romans 13 and verse 10. Love works no ill to his neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. And that, knowing the time, that now it is high time to awake out of sleep, for now is our salvation nearer than when we believed. The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Let us therefore cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light." So if we feel that the end is near, that our salvation is near, this is the desired activity. And that's what the Days of Unleavened Bread are all about. Let us walk honestly as in the day, not in rioting and drunkenness, not in chambering and wantonness, not in strife and envying, but put you on the Lord Jesus Christ and make not provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof and very frequently we might wish to do something and we provide a way a justification a means for our human nature to take over to take charge to direct our lives it is amazing the excuses I've heard over the years for certain activities that people have done. We won't take time to go into all those. I don't remember them all, but I come up with some of my own sometimes that, uh, that work pretty good. Now let's go to 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15. And begin in verse 13. But if there be no resurrection of the dead, then is Christ. Uh, wait a minute. What did I say? 1534 is what I wanted. Awake to righteousness and sin not. Wake up to righteousness, he says. For some have not the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. We have the knowledge of God. We have no excuse to be asleep. And yet, we did, didn't we? But some men will say, how are the dead raised up and with what body do they come? You fool? We'll argue over little questions of how many angels can dance on the head of a pen and miss the whole point that we have to wake up to change, to be different, to ensure our salvation. It's easy to get off onto things to argue about, but that is not to be our direction. Ephesians 5. Ephesians 5. And let's look at verse 14. Wherefore, he says, Awake you that sleep, and arise from the dead, and Christ shall give you life. Spiritually dead, awake, I mean asleep, out of it, like a log. Did Paul have problems with people back then going to sleep? See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Not wasting time, using the time for positive purposes. Wherefore, be you not unwise, but understanding what the will of the Lord is. And it is amazing to me how many people today do not understand what God is even doing, even within the church. How many do you think really might understand why the church is being scattered, what God is doing, what his purpose is in doing so? We've talked about this a great deal in this particular organization But I'll bet there are 10,000 people in the whole church of God that even begin to recognize that. Out of what was the original 140,000, 150,000 that were at the feast. That might even be a high number. Now let's go to Isaiah 26. Isaiah 26. And beginning in verse 17. Isaiah 26, 17. (laughs) describing us here. Like as a woman with child that draws near the time of her delivery is in pain and cries out in her pangs, so have we been in your sight, O Lord. And remember, this is talking to the church. Your dead men shall live. Together with my dead body shall they arise. So he's speaking of the resurrection here. Awake and sing, you that dwell in dust. Now remember that dwell in dust. We'll see that again a little later on. For your dew is as the dew of herbs, and the earth shall cast out the dead. Come, my people, enter you into your chambers. That's the bridal chamber, probably the place of safety. I think we have some events that have to occur before that occurs, so don't think we're going to leave today. Um, unless an angel comes, but I don't think so. I think there's some things that have to happen first. Hide yourself, as it were, for a little moment until the indignation be overpassed. So there will come a point where the bridegroom goes into her chambers and waits. But we had better be awake and singing and seeking God, otherwise we might miss out on that. For behold, the Lord comes out of his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. The earth also shall disclose her blood and shall no more cover her slain." This is going to happen. God is going to punish this earth. There were, what, at least 10 people killed around Nashville last night in tornadoes. Some say, oh, it's just El Nino, but one weather forecaster we heard said that normally from April 15th to June 30th, I believe the date was, there are 150 tornadoes in the United States. This year, there have been 300, and we're only on April 17th, two days into the season. He said it's not El Nino. Then what is it? Is it the prince of the power of the air, stirring up anger? One of these years, it's not going to quit. It's going to keep going. Don't know whether this is the one or not, but it's is intensifying all over. Everything is getting worse and worse and worse as we go. You and I should very well know, for we have felt, we have felt, the anger of the Eternal already in the church. And therefore we should understand that it is going to be unleashed on this whole world very, very shortly now. Now let's go to Lamentations 2. We'll back this up just a little bit. Lamentations 2 and verse 17. The Lord has done that which he had devised. He has fulfilled his word that he had commanded in the days of old. He has thrown down and has not pitied, and he has caused your enemy to rejoice over you. He has set up the horn of your adversaries. Their heart cried to the Lord, O wall of the daughter of Zion, let tears run down like a river day and night. Give yourself no rest. Let not the apple of your eye cease. Arise, cry out in the night. In the beginning of the watches, pour out your heart like water before the face of the Lord. Lift up your hands toward him for the life of your young children that faint for hunger in the top of every street. We're in a time of great drought, and he tells us to be awake and alert and not to give ourselves any sleep, any rest. I don't think he intends us to stay awake physically until Christ returns. That might be difficult. But in a spiritual sense, we are to be alert, alive, awake, every nerve a quiver, for the time is at hand. Behold, O Lord, and consider to whom you have done this. Shall the women eat their fruit and children of a span long? Shall the priest and the prophet be slain in the sanctuary of the Lord? Are we eating ourselves up, spiritually speaking? It's going to happen physically to the nation where they'll actually eat their own children. But the churches, the Splendors off of Worldwide, are eating their own children right now, spiritually speaking. And the prophets are being slain in the sanctuary of the Lord. They're falling one by one by one by one into disuse, disharmony, dissension, division, frustration, retirement, quitting, because of the pressures that we're involved in. Luke 15, I will not turn to. You're very familiar with the story of the prodigal son. He was eating and oinking with the pigs and rose to go to his father and home. But I think the story should be crystal clear to us. He had led a riotous life of adultery, of fornication, of all the so-called fun things of this world. Now we don't do those things, do we, brethren? We've come away from that kind of life. We don't live that way anymore, do we? Or do we? Do we do it vicariously? At the movie houses? And on our television sets? Maybe we need to take a long look at some of these things. And the, what I used to call, mindless sitcoms. If you watch it parade across your television set at night, they have constant fornication, adultery, homosexuality is being promoted very big now on the sitcoms and the movies. Can we sit there and call that entertainment? Does God look upon it as entertaining? And you say, well, yeah, but it's just a little bit, and then they do something else. And it's just a little more, and they do something else. So, you know, you just sort of have to overlook that. Now, what if we gave you a package of doctrine that was pretty much okay, except for a little blip here and there. You know, you don't really have to keep the Sabbath, and maybe there's a Trinity, and, you know, just things like that. No problem. How does God look at it? What did he do to Sodom and Gomorrah? Wipe them out completely. And he is going to wipe this world out. Are we going with it? No, wait, girl. Let's have some balance here. You know, don't, don't, don't get to my vicarious sins. These are the days to put sin out. I've had to do some assessing in these last seven days. And this boy is going to get control of that television one way or another. I have a 12-gauge. I may be forced. (laughs) Or a yard sale one, I don't know. Now you say, well, it's just kind of funny and they tell these fruity jokes. Is it funny when they're representing Homosexuality, sodomy, and lesbianism is good?
1: Is that funny, brethren?
0: Can we listen to those comedians talk about it and chuckle about fairy stories? It's an abomination before God. Why is the church still scattering? Why isn't it over? Why is not it stopped? Why is it intensifying? Because of you and me. Because we haven't gotten the picture yet. It's going to continue. It's going to get worse until God sees enough humble, contrite, meek people seeking Him with all their hearts. I don't think for a minute, or didn't at the time, Last Pentecost, when we talked about Joel and healing and turning to God with our whole hearts, that we would suddenly do that because of one fast. It takes time. Human beings change slowly, but we're running out of time. This world is not going to last long. The economies of Asia are about to collapse. America is not far behind it. There are a lot of dynamics working. Time is short, and we must redeem it. How deeply do we examine our lives? How serious do we get about this? The prodigal son, when he was eating at the trough, finally got serious about it. Proverbs 6. Proverbs 6. And let's begin. And verse 4. Give not sleep to your eyes, nor slumber to your eyelids. Now go to verse 9. How long will you sleep, O sluggard? When will you arise out of your sleep? Yet a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to sleep. I'll overcome that tomorrow. We'll save that till next week. I'm not sure I ever really want to overcome that at all. Let's sweep on, shall we? Let's go to Isaiah 56. I'll take the heat off you for a minute and talk about creatures. Isaiah 56. Verse 10. His watchmen are blind. Now we're talking about the ministry of the church of God, the greater church of God here. His watchmen are blind. Now if you're a watchman on a tower looking for foxes getting into the graves, how much good will you do blind? They're all ignorant. They're all dumb dogs. They cannot bark. Sleeping, lying down, loving to slumber. This is the ministry we listen to. Is it any wonder we're sound asleep or not awake yet? Yes, they are greedy dogs which can never have enough. They are shepherds that cannot understand. They don't understand what is happening in the church and why. They don't know what God is doing today. It's business as usual. Let's go ahead and preach the gospel. We've got to get our heads down preach the gospel. Send us more money. Send us more money. We've got to preach the gospel. How do you preach the gospel when your power is shattered and scattered? I don't think it can be done today. And I don't see anybody having success at it. Well, they're trying, and maybe they get. Someone called at the eleventh hour once in a while but it's not really accomplishing much, is it? And the organizations that are doing it are losing people and dividing and dividing and dividing. They just don't understand what God is doing. They all look to their own way. Do they seek the ways of the Lord? Well, they seek the obedience, the understanding that we used to do 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago. But have they thought beyond that to see what God might be doing today as opposed to what he was doing 20 or 30 years ago? It seems very few question that, and very few seek it out in the Bible. There are people who are waking up here and there that are getting the picture. Everyone for his game from his quarter. Come ye, say they, I will fetch wine and we will fill ourselves with strong drink and tomorrow shall be as this day and much more abundant. The work is just going to get bigger and bigger. We're going to grow and grow, and we'll cover the world with the knowledge of God, and we'll preach the gospel to all creatures, and then the end will come. Same song, second verse. Could get better, going to get worse. We're trying to wake up in this organization. As ministers, we're trying to learn to bark. I'm not saying we're any better than any others. But we're going to learn to bark. We'll let God's word bite. We'll try not to learn that. Don't want to bite you. Just want to bark at you.
1: <laughs>
0: we'll wag our tails and bark, maybe. But bark, we shout. Ecclesiastes 5.12, I won't turn to, but it says the sleep of a laboring man is sweet. If we are growing and overcoming the way we ought to, we'll be able to sleep at night. If we're not, we'll toss and turn. We'll have our problems. What did Christ say to his disciples when he was in the agony in the garden before he was taken? Why sleep you? Rise and pray, lest you fall into temptation. That's Luke 22.46. And another account in Matthew 26, 43 through 45. Let's turn to that one right quick. Matthew 26, <clears throat> verse 43. And he came and found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy. And he left them and went away again and prayed the third time, saying the same words. Three warnings. Three times he warned them. Wake up. Pray. Ever notice warnings often come in threes? And he left them and went away and prayed again the third time, saying the same words. Then comes he to disciples and said to them, "Sleep on now, take your rest. The hour is at hand. The Son of Man is betrayed to the hands of sinners." What a disappointing thing for him to warn them three times, go through all that agony, and come back and say, "Well, the guys, go ahead and take a nap." <laughs> it's all over with the shouting. These guys, ultimately, are going to be part of the bride of Christ. And once they woke up, once they were filled with his spirit, they made some changes. That's the encouraging part of this. We can, too. It can be done. If we don't do it, <laughs> he has ways. He has means. First Thessalonians 5. Let's go back to that one again since we're here. 1 Thessalonians 5. And let's pick it up in verse 1. But of the times and seasons, brethren, you have no need that I write to you, for yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. For when they shall say, peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them, as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. So when the crash comes, when the fall comes... It is going to come suddenly. I think Isaiah says, in a moment. It's going to be quick. They will be shocked. You are all the children of light and the children of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. Therefore let us not sleep as do others, but let us watch and be sober. For they that sleep, sleep in the night, and they that be drunken are drunken in the night. But let us who are of the day be sober putting on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet the hope of salvation, for God has not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through Jesus Christ. If we will wake up and be alert, he says we will obtain salvation through Christ. The onus is on us. Proverbs 10, 5, I will not turn to. You can jot it down if you wish. He that sleeps in harvest is a son that causes shame. As the sons of God, wouldn't it be awful for him to simply be ashamed of us? I don't want to see that one. Throw him in the lake. Mark, Mark 13. In this section, I'll turn to one more. There's a lot in here, isn't there? I, I just picked up a few. You go through the concordance and there are just zillions of them. That's a bit of an exaggeration, but you get the point. There's a lot of this. Thirteen thirty-two. But of that day and that hour, no man knows—not the angels which are in heaven, neither the Son, but the Father. So if you don't know, relax. Now let's go on to another scripture. Now wait a minute. Let's read a little more. Take you heed. Watch and pray. For you know not when the time is. And he did it that way on purpose to keep us moving. No matter how many times we hear wolf, wolf, we're not to relax. I've been out in the woods a lot in my life. And I've looked for wolves and looked for wolves and looked for wolves. Couldn't find any wolves. Years I looked for wolves. One day I looked up, there were wolves. Right there, in my eyesight. I'd go to Alaska to find them, but then it happened fairly often. There were wolves around. So all this wolf-wolf business that I thought was baloney turned out not so phony. Watch you therefore, for you know not when the master of the house comes, at even or at midnight or at the cock crowing or in the morning. Let's coming suddenly, there's that word again, he finds you sleeping. And what I say to you, I say unto all, watch. It's coming suddenly. We have to recognize the signs. We have to see it coming. The world is going to be taken and blindsided. Just as we were spiritually blindsided, weren't we? Suddenly, that which we had been so stable, so strong for so long, Clashed around our ears. And it's about to happen to the world. Song of Songs is another good story, which I won't go back and turn to. We're all pretty familiar with it. But remember the, the dream where the bride, the girl, was lying in bed, and she's already all had her shoes off and all tuckied? And the bridegroom comes and knocks on the door, and she says, Oh, you get it, honey. oh I don't want to get up I get cold and he looked through the lattice and while she fooled around and did not respond to her proposed husband he left and then she says oh no I blew it again so she jumps up and gets her clothes off and goes running out into the city streets and the watchmen find her and they beat her up Because she did not respond in time.
1: That's talking about the God of Christ. Us.
0: All slumbered and slept. I said warnings come in three. Whoa, whoa, whoa. As in Revelation. We won't even turn to that one. Let's look at Lot for a moment. He was sitting in the gate... the worst culture on earth a city in which apparently every man except hey him and maybe his son-in-laws were homosexuals but he sat in the gate he was comfy there now Lot the Bible says was a just man but even a just man got comfortable with all that perversion around him. And when the angel came and said, Get out, three times he had to be warned to get out of there. And then he even argued about where to go. He wanted to go to Zohar, which means little town, thinking that would be okay. The angel told him to go to the mountains. Well, something might get me up there. And then when, whoop, Sodom and Gomorrah disappeared, he fled Zoar and found him a hole in the rock in the mountains where the angel had told him to go in the first place. Three times. Now you and I criticize and carp and gripe about the traffic. We gripe about the crime. We gripe about the schools. We gripe about the taxes. We gripe about everything there is to gripe about. God, take us out of this. But we don't want to come out of this. We're content. We're happy in our homes. We're happy in our jobs. We're happy in whatever it is that we're doing that's materialistic. Now, give me a break. How many Americans would be content with food and raiment, as John's been talking about? How many? I mean, food and raiment's okay as long as you include the microwave to cook it, (laughs) you know, on and on and on. We get comfortable with the society we're in. We get comfortable with the queers running across our television set in our own living room. Maybe we're just, maybe we aren't, but we're comfortable with sin. (laughs) What does it take to make us put it out? What does it take for God to lift this chastening and scattering that we're going through. We might even remember not to forget Lot's wife. Even in actually finally getting up and walking out, she looked whimsically back at that beloved place that she had just left, which was the worst sinful place probably that has ever existed. We're pretty stubborn, aren't we? It's pretty hard for us to turn loose of the things of this world, isn't it? Seven days we've been working at it now. and even got a head start on it as we examined ourselves ahead of time. Could I see the hands of those who've made it? You're out of sin. plumb out. I'll take mine down in a hurry. I was just asking for yours. I wasn't... Now we still have a ways to go. We're going to see another set of threes here. Let's look at some specifics. And I want to pick it up in Isaiah 50. Isaiah 50. He talks about the bride. He talks about Zion and the chapters leading up to this. It appears millennial in many respects, and perhaps it has some millennial applications. But I think we shall see that it also has some application before the millennium decurs. And some of it is ancient history that is about to be repeated and is being repeated. Chapter 50 of Isaiah. Thus says the Lord, where is the bill of your mother's divorcement whom I have put away? Of which of my creditors is it to whom I have sold you? Did Christ sell out the church? Behold, for your iniquities have you sold yourselves into sin, into this world, into Babylon, into Egypt. And for your transgressions is your mother put away. God has put Worldwide Church of God away. He has divorced her. He no longer claims her as his own. Because she has played the harlot and gone into paganism so deeply. I don't see how she can come out in this day and age sad that the mother that nurtured us that we grew up in spiritually has departed from her husband or her husband-to-be. The analogies run back and forth between Christ and his wife in the Old Testament and the bride and the bridegroom in the New Testament. So maybe we'll mix our metaphors a little bit here, but uh, the point is, there is a gulf between God and Christ and the church today. Wherefore, when I came, was there no man? When I called, was there none to answer? Where is the leadership? Where is anyone who will cry out for righteousness? Where is anyone who will cry for repentance? Where are all these dead dogs that can't bark? Is my hand shortened at all, that I cannot redeem, or have I no power to deliver? Behold, at my rebuke I dry up the sea, I make the rivers a wilderness. Their fish stinks, because there is no water, and dies for thirst. And he had a resume to prove it. I clothe the heavens with blackness, I make sackcloth their covering. So he gives you history to show that he's done it in Egypt, by drying the Red Sea, by making the Nile stink. And he gives you future by showing the day of the Lord. So now we're getting a little idea of the setting here, aren't we? This is just prior to the day of the Lord that he is making these exclamations. The Lord God has given me the tongue of the learned, that I should know how to speak a word in season to him that is weary. He wakens morning by morning. He wakens my ear to hear as the learned. It seems to sort of go back and forth here between Christ and Isaiah. Christ is saying all these things through Isaiah, and it sort of seems to go back and forth between them. The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious, neither turned away back, and then it it blends into Christ again. I gave my back to the smiters, and my cheeks to them that plucked off the hair. I hid not my face from shame and spitting. We read this at Passover sometimes. That's the setting here. For the Lord God will help me, therefore shall I not be confounded, therefore have I set my face like flint, and I know that I shall not be ashamed. And Christ fulfilled that. He stood staunchly and strongly and sinless and pure and clean as he was killed for you and me. He despised the shame, Paul says in Hebrews. Hebrews. He is near that justifies me. Who will contend with me? Let us stand together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord God will help me. This may be getting back to Isaiah again. Who is he that shall condemn me? Lo, they shall all wax old as a garment. The moth shall eat them up. And as we shall see in the context, this could even be going into types of Christ in the end time, such as a rubber belt. I think that will become apparent as we get into this. Behold, all you that kindle a fire that compass yourselves about with sparks, walk in the light of your fire and in the sparks that you have kindled. Now God says, all right, you think you're so bright? Walk in the light of your own fire. Where are you going to get? This shall you have of my hand. You shall lie down in sorrow. We have to put our own little fire of pride and vanity out and meekly, humbly walk before God in the light of His fire, in the light of His face, not in our own pride and vanity. Someone was just telling me just before the service started of a great division that occurred in one of the churches of God. And now all the men around the table at the conference would not, not one would admit he was wrong about anything. But that pride and vanity and human nature rose up and they would rather split the church than admit they were wrong about anything. Who cares about the people? I've got face to save here. Talk about dumb, ignorant dogs that don't know what's going on. I have to get rid of that kind of pride. You have to get rid of that kind of pride. I'm not just standing here condemning them. We all have it. The hardest thing it is for a man to do is admit he's wrong. I've heard that since I was a little child from Herbert W. Armstrong. Over and over and over again. You know what? I've come to believe the man. Boy, it's hard not to walk in our own fire. But he says he'll bring us down if we do. I wonder where I am in my notes. Let's go to chapter 51 since it's next. We'll pick it up right there. Hearken to me, you that follow after righteousness. All right, that's pretty easy to figure out who he's talking to. It's an end-time prophecy, and he talks to us, those who seek after righteousness. You that seek the Lord. Look to the rock when you were hewn, and to the hole of the pit when you were digged. Where did we come from? Don't forget our roots. (coughs) Don't forget where God or Christ called us and how he called us and what we learned there. Now, when we find ourselves in this position at the end, what does he say to do? Look to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah that that bear you. For I called him alone and blessed him and increased him. (coughs) Why should we look to Abraham and Sarah? They walked in faith. What powerful faith to a man and a woman who couldn't anymore and did anyway when God said to and had a child after years and years of trying. And then he grew up, and then he said, kill him. You know the story. And he sought a city that he didn't even know where it was going. God said, go. He said, oh, okay, let's go. Personally and individually, I like a little more direction than that you know it's hard to say well why don't you go Daryl I've had that said to me before (laughs) I've even had people tell me where to go (laughs) I don't always do everything I'm told but but God just said go and so Abraham starts trucking on (laughs) I don't even know where I'm headed anybody got a road map no Faith is number two on the list, isn't it? Faith, hope, and love. I guess it's number one on the list, but it's inverted list. So we need faith and we need hope. And I hope before we're done today, we'll have hope. Because the scriptures are full of hope. So he says, You who seek righteousness just before the dark day of the Lord, look to Abraham. Verse 3, For the Lord shall comfort Zion, He will comfort all her waste places. We have a lot of waste places in the church, don't we? This is going to turn around. It's not going to be scattered forever. It's going to be scattered until there's nothing left, and then it's going to be turned around. Not one stone will be left on top of another, he says. And he will make her wilderness like Eden, and her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness shall be found therein, thanksgiving and the voice of melody won't that be a welcome relief when God turns this thing around and the church is united again we'll see that that's going to happen here before we're done isn't just talking about the millennium it is but that's not all hearken to me my people give ear to me O my nation for a law shall proceed for me and I will make my judgment to rest for a light of the people my righteousness is near see that's not millennium yet because his righteousness will be here once he's here this is before he's here because it's near. My salvation has gone forth and my arms shall judge the people. The isle shall wait upon me and on my arm shall they trust. Lift up your eyes to the heavens and look upon the earth beneath. All right, let's observe something, he says. Look up, look down. For the heavens shall vanish away like smoke and the earth shall wax old like a garment. And they that dwell therein shall die in like manner, but my salvation shall be forever, and my righteousness shall not be abolished." So here again we get a sense of the timing of this. Just before he suddenly sends destruction and the heavens vanish away like smoke. Hearken to me, you that know righteousness. He's been talking to Zion. He won't have to tell us, hearken to me. And if after a moment, a twinkling of an eye, we're raised to meet him in the clouds, we will have already hearkened, and we will have already been raised. So this is a time when that has not yet occurred, and the context is about Zion, the church. Now, verse 9, awake, awake, awake. Put on strength, O arm of the Lord. Awake as in the ancient days and the generations of old. Are you not it that has cut Rahab and wounded the dragon? This is a cry for Christ to awake. Arm, strength of the Lord. He's the one that cut Rahab. Commentaries say Rahab is a type of Egypt here and wounded the dragon. They figure that was the crocodiles in the Nile. And the context does indicate that, because he says, Are you not it which has dried the sea, the waters of the great deep, that has made the depths of the sea a way for the ransom to pass over? So that's the context, is going back to Egypt. And he says, Do this same kind of work again. We're going to see incredible, incredible miracles before the return of Christ. Because he will do the same works of old. Now, perhaps it's a warning as well to the leadership. Perhaps it's Bell, who is a type of Christ, who also has work to do. And we'll see that as we go along here. But now, I'll quote a couple of scriptures to you. Isaiah 33:10. 10. I won't turn to these for sake of time. He says, Now will I rise, says the Lord. Now will I be exalted. Now will I lift up myself. So he's been sitting watching this, directing this, but he's going to get up and go to work. Says so in Psalm 119, 126. It is time for you, O Lord, to work, for they have voided your law. That puts it now. The church has voided the law of God. And it's time for him to go to work, to chasten and to punish. Zechariah 2.13. Be silent, O all flesh, before the Lord, for he is raised up out of his holy habitation. He is going to work. Now, let's see. Uh, let's go on down. <clears throat> verse 16, I have put my words in your mouth, and I have covered you in the shadow of my hand, that I may plant the heavens and lay the foundations of the earth, and say unto Zion, You are my people. So he told Isaiah to say to my people, You are my people. The prophecy is for us. Isaiah was talking to us. Now notice verse 17. Verse 17. Awake, awake, same thing we read back here, to Christ specifically, and maybe to a type of Christ, as we'll see again. Now who is he talking to? Awake, awake, stand up, O Jerusalem, the church, which have drunk at the hand of the Lord the cup of his fury. You have drunken the dregs of the cup of trembling and wrung them out. Have we been drinking at the hand of the cup of God's fury in the church as he's chastened us for our Laodiceanism, spewing us out of his mouth? We've seen that in multitudes of scriptures to show what God is doing. All right, so this is talking about us who are having this problem. 18 shows it even clearer. There is none to guide her among all the sons whom she has brought forth. Of all those who came into the church in all those years of the broadcast and television and plain truth, Out of all those who came and were converted, or came and weren't converted, or came and whatever they did, none, not one leader stands out to guide Zion where she needs to go. None of her sons. Neither is there any that takes her by the hand of all the sons that she has brought up. These two things are come to you. Who shall be sorry for you? Desolation and destruction and the famine and the sword. By whom shall I comfort you? We've talked about Ezekiel 5 happening to the church, then to the world. Zechariah 12 ties it directly to the church. You don't even have to have a reach if you go back to Zechariah 12. I'll turn back there quickly and we'll hit that just for a moment. Zechariah 12. Well, wait a minute. Let's go to Zechariah 13. That fits better. Verse 7. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd and against the man that is my fellow. Verse 7 of chapter 13. Says the Lord of hosts, Smite the shepherd and the sheep shall be scattered. Now that's got to be talking about the church. I don't know what else it could be talking about. And I will turn my hand upon the little ones, and it shall come to pass, and in all the land, says the Lord, two parts therein shall be cut off and die, but the third shall be left therein. And I will bring the third part through the fire, and will refine them as silver is refined, and will try them as gold is tried. They shall call on my name, and I will hear them, and I will say, It is my people, and they shall say, The Lord is my God. Then he starts talking about Christ returning, and standing on the Mount of Olives. So the church is in trouble today and we are experiencing it. Now moving on, verse 21, Therefore hear now this, you afflicted and drunk, but not with wine. We are afflicted and drunk spiritually. Now, Mr. Armstrong used to talk a great deal about soapboxes. People would stand up and exalt themselves on a soapbox. And most of you probably have never seen a wooden soapbox that anybody could stand on since cardboard was invented. I saw a few wooden Apple boxes, but I don't think I ever saw a real soapbox. But I would like to use a prop every 15 or 20 years just to keep in shape for it. So I brought myself a soap box. For you in the back, S-O-P-E, soap. Now, we'll get technical, too, because you turn it over, and you have the Greek. ethos. Sounds Greek. It's probably in strong. But I didn't really look it up. So I can't give you the number. But anyway, Since the Days of Unleavened Bread are almost over, I think I can exalt myself a bit. We'll raise the mic. And I am almost seven feet tall now. Because this box is a little over a foot tall. I always wondered why Mike Ford smiled a lot. You, 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 you people kind of look funny down there. This, this is a strange perspective. I've got me a soapbox now. And if I put this hat on, being this tall, I'll probably look like an athlete. It says, I may be fat, but you're ugly, and I can diet. (laughs) And if I put it on backward, I'll probably look like a real American athlete. And intelligent looking, too. Did I hear Shaquille O'Neal? You know, we pay the guy $25 million because he can stand flat-footed and drop a round sphere through a hole. And two or three times a game, he can jump a foot off the ground and slam it through that hole. About half the time he misses, but hey, what's $25 million? Plus endorsements, maybe $50 million a year. Maybe that didn't quite fit. Michael Jordan, a little, little tall for Michael, but he hits it over 50% away, and he can do it for quite a ways away. He doesn't have to stand right under the basket. Now, that I'm exalted and handsome and athletic looking, I want to propose a little game. Now, I'm going to represent the Philadelphia 76ers. Let's make it 70-70ers because that's two times perfect. So we'll just add a digit to Philadelphia 76ers. And we're going to play you, and let's just call you the Los Angeles Lay of the Seans. How does that sound? Let's just include everybody, not just Los Angeles, but us Philadelphians are going to take on the rest of you. Because you're all Laodiceans, but us. Are we getting the picture here? If I exalt myself over a foot, and I stand up, and I say that I'm okay, and I'm fully in your layo, what does that make me? It makes me spiritually rich and increased with goods, doesn't it? It makes me lay to see it. Now, we have this problem in the church. We're pointing fingers at each other right and left. Because everybody wants to be Philadelphians. Not only do they want to be Philadelphians, they don't want to just be the elect. They want to be the very elect. And I'll bet there's an innumerable bunch of churches, groups, and peoples, individuals, who have said, we are the Philadelphians, the rest of you are Laodiceans. Now let's add a little drunk to this because he says we're all drunk. There were some of the Brickett Wood students one year who went down to Hyde Park there in London and the drunks would get up on soapboxes and they would preach to whoever walked by. And there was this one fellow who kept saying, I got something burn across. yeah." Burn the
1: cross. Some
0: people stop. Oh, got to listen to this. This drunk might know what he's talking about. I got something burned the cross. It's a double cross. And brethren, that's what we do. If we claim that we are religiously and spiritually more superior than anyone else, We are all, have all, been Laodicean and asleep, and we must wake up. Now, those of you on the telephone lines have to imagine what a wonderful spectacle I've been here, but uh, I'm going to dismount, tuck my soapbox away, and throw my athletic hat away, and get back down to being a little old me, because that's all any of us are. But he says, we're drunk spiritually. Did you ever see a bunch of drunks marching in precise formation? Hey, you're going to go over here. You're going to go over there. When we come back, we'll hit each other. And it reminds me of reading the journal, that publication. Because everybody has got his poison pen out pointing the fingers. They can't agree about anything and they fight in words. Because everybody leans to his own understanding, and it's such a confusing thing that everybody has to be right. And if you write something for the journal, which I've never done and probably never will, you're going to get a thousand letters back, or you're going to get letters to the editor that just take apart everything you said. And it's just not the kind of field that I wish to do battle in. I'm not trying to knock the, the journal, uh, lest it get back and they cut off my subscription, because I did subscribe uh, recently just to get an idea of sort of what's going on. But I don't read all that stuff. I sort of glance through it and sort of pick up the news to see if I'm right or wrong when I tell you the church is still scattering and still dividing and it's still full of pride and selfishness and vanity. And lo and behold, after two issues, I think I'm still right. I think the scriptures are still right. So hear now this, you afflicted and drunk, but not with wine. Thus says your Lord the Lord, and your God that pleads the cause of this people. Behold, I have taken out of your hand the cup of trembling, even the dregs of the cup of my fury. You shall no more drink it again, ever. It is not long now, brethren, until God is going to take this cup of trembling and chastening and horror out of our hand and give it to those who have persecuted us both spiritually and who are about to persecute us physically. Because those who have persecuted us religiously for continuing to obey God are probably going to go right into tribulation. The last three and a half years of the great are the tribulation. But I will put it into the hand of them that afflict you which have said to your soul, bow down that we may go over And you have laid your body as the ground and as a street to them that went over. Remember a while ago we talked about that scripture that said, Get up out of the dust. We've been warned here. Christ is to arise. He is to wake up. He is going to start his work. Then he warns us in verse 17. And he says, Get up off the ground. You've been walked on. We have been walked on by Babylon all these years. We've bowed to their wishes. We've bowed to their will. We've partaken of their entertainment. We've partaken of their greedy, materialistic approach to life. We've been part and parcel with them. We haven't resisted. We just let them walk on us, and we've just bowed down in the dust. What's God been doing? He's been kicking our behinds as we lay in the dust, saying, Get up! Now, chapter 52. Awake! Awake! Put on your strength, O Zion. Don't lay in the dust anymore, brethren. We can't do this. Put on your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city, speaking to us. For henceforth there shall no more come to you the uncircumcised and the unclean. I'm not going to put up with this anymore. I am going to purify. I'm going to make holy. I am like a refiner's fire, he says. Shake yourself from the dust. Arise and sit down. Now what does that mean? You've been laying in the dust, it said in verse 23, and now it says arise and sit down. So we're going to keep sitting in the dust? Barnes Notes says the Hebrew does not... in indicate that at all, but that it says, get up out of the dust and sit on your exalted chair, O Zion. Get ready to rule. Get ready. Be ready to judge righteous judgment, to be as wise as Solomon, to rule the world and reign with Jesus Christ. Loose yourself from the bands of your neck, O captive daughter of Zion. Don't let Babylon keep this stranglehold on our neck. Shake it off. Now, what's he talking about specifically? I guess you have to answer that. What parts of you does Babylon have hold on? Is it your neck? Is it your nose? Is it your chin? Is it your tongue? Is it your ankle or your feet? How does Babylon have its hold on you? Is it your brain? How does he have a hold on the church? For thus says the Lord, you have sold yourselves for nothing. We think Esau was bad. You've sold yourselves for nothing. And you shall be redeemed without money. Here's the redeemed. Revelation 14, 3-4. We are the redeemed. We will be redeemed without money. for thus says the Lord God, my people, <clears throat> excuse me, went down aforetime into Egypt to sojourn there, and the Assyrian oppressed them without cause. Now this verse just tears the commentators apart. How did they go down into Egypt, and how did the Assyrian oppress them without cause? They have trouble with that, because the Assyrian wasn't involved in Egypt. And there was no type there at all, even, between the Assyrian and the Egyptian. But I think when you're talking to the church, it should become fairly obvious to us. Worldwide Church of God went back into Egypt. And a type of the Assyrian arose in the church, who set out to destroy everything godly that had been built. And pretty much accomplished it, except those few who escaped, and who are still struggling. And it was without cause, wasn't it, in one sense? That is, we didn't deserve to be given all that bad doctrine. Now, we deserve to be chastened. We deserve to be punished for our sins. But we didn't really deserve that. Satan just dumped that on us through the Assyrian. Now, God also uses the Assyrian to punish for our national sins and our personal sins. (laughs) There's no doubt about it but that's the part that really i guess we didn't deserve if that's if i'm looking at this correctly as we didn't deserve that doctrine now therefore what have i hear says the lord that my people is taken away for nothing they that rule over them make them to howl boy do we ever hear howling from the people is a ministry the ministry makes the people to howl they're hurting they're suffering And they're blaming the ministry for their troubles. Now the ministry is causing some trouble for people and has in the past, but you are responsible for your own sins and responsible for your own overcoming. And my name continually every day is blasphemed. It's taken in vain when we don't do what we should be doing. Therefore my people shall know my name. Therefore they shall know in that day that I am he that does speak. Behold, it is me. I am going to assert myself, Christ says, and I will get your attention, and you will understand, and you will obey, or else. Now it changes. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of Him, this is singular, that brings good tidings, that publishes peace, that brings good tidings of good, that publishes salvation that says unto Zion, your God reigns. Here's someone who comes in verse 6 who does four things. This is someone we need to be attuned to, be watching for, and listening for. Someone who publishes or proclaims peace. When does God promise peace? Go to the book of Haggai. It talks about rebuilding the church, building the latter temple, and he says, there will I bring peace. Zechariah 11 talks about scattering of the churches. And it talks about grace and unity being broken in the church. Beauty and bands, or grace and unity, will be broken. But then they will be rejoined. They will be brought back together, he says. Zechariah 4, talking about Zerubbabel, the type of Christ, the leader of the two witnesses. And it says, grace, grace. Unity. Unity. One of the primary jobs of the witnesses is to unify the church once God has gotten done scattering it. That brings good tidings of good. He provides oil to all seven churches, or those two do. And they bring rejoicing. Go to uh, Zechariah 4, verses 10 through 11. It says that there will be rejoicing in that day. When we finally have leaders of all the sons whom God has raised up, he's going to give us leaders who will bring peace and unity and rejoicing to the church. And this is all before Christ returns. It's all before the place of safety. I'll prove that to you in a minute. He you will publish or proclaim salvation, we'll finish the house. Let's go to Zechariah 4.9. Let's see that. Zechariah 4 and verse 9. The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house; his hands shall also finish it. And you shall not, you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. For who has despised the day of small things? For they shall rejoice and shall see the plummet in the hand of Zerubbabel with those seven, they are the eyes, the eyes of the Lord. And it talks about a little later on those two providing oil to all seven churches here in verses 12 and 13. And it says they are the two anointed ones of the whole earth. in Revelation 11. So this all happens before the return of Christ, that rejoicing will return to the church. And that, we will see, is before the place of safety ever even occurs. I was going to... well, let's go on. Um, The fourth thing is tell Zion there is one God who is sovereign over all. That's the thing that we have to, that the world has to understand. It's something the church has to understand. That there's only one God in the universe. The God of pride, the God of self, the God of commerce, doesn't count. And the gods of commerce are going to be torn down, the beast, as a financial and a political organization. And he says it will be knocked flat and all the merchants of the earth will mourn over it. There is one God, This God of science and technology is not it. It is the Lord God of hosts. Now verse 8 of Isaiah 52. Your watchmen, they started out with him, singular, now it goes to plural. Your watchmen shall lift up the voice, with a voice together shall they sing. For they shall see eye to eye when the Lord shall bring back, put back, gather Zion. So God is going to have two witnesses against this world and two leaders of the church who will stand forth out of all the sons of Zion. Break forth into joy. Sing together, you waste places of Jerusalem, all you torn down, trodden congregations. Lift up your voice. Break into joy. For the Lord has comforted his people, he has redeemed Jerusalem. And we are the first fruits, the redeemed of the Lord, at the first resurrection, if we qualify. The Lord has made bare his holy arm in the eyes of all the nations. Christ is going to rise, as we read, and he, through his power, his might, his strength, and through Zerubbabel, are going to show the nations that there is a God in heaven, and that his snakes can eat their snakes. and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. Depart you, depart you, go you out from thence, touch no unclean thing, go you out of the midst of her, be you clean that bear the vessels of the eternal. Here we are, the days of unleavened bread, just about ending, and he tells us to be clean for you shall not go out with haste, nor go by flight, for the Lord will go before you, and the God of Israel will be your gathering, or shall gather you up. Rear guard is another word. This isn't speaking of the place of safety. Read Matthew 24, 14, or 15 through 20. And It says, don't even go in your house, don't get your things, get. Great haste. Hope it isn't the Sabbath. Hope it isn't inclement weather. Get up and get. Revelation 12 is the same way. The devil's on your tail. Go now. But this is a different time. It says here, don't go hastily. Don't go by flight. But go. Now, it's speaking spiritually, of course, of coming away from our sins. But that can't be all it's talking about. Because are we supposed to sort of buddy up to our sins and not go hastily out of sin? Everything I read in the Bible says get away from sin now. Don't wait, don't hesitate, go and sin no more. So this has to be speaking physically at some point as well. God expects us to get up and move ourselves out, and not in a hasty manner. When you come up with the idea, explanation of that, I'd love to hear it, but it doesn't fit with some other things. And he ties it right back to Christ. Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. And then it goes right into the type of scriptures we read at Passover. We take this right out of the context and read it at Passover time because it's talking about Christ and his sacrifice. And he who can redeem us, he who can save us, he who died for us. But we have to leave it in the context of the rest of it. Because... There is a step-by-step process through which Christ is working in the church. He's given us a warning. He gives us another warning. And then he gives us another warning. Right here. Three of them. In Isaiah 51 and
1: 52.
0: Now let's tie this together a little bit and see what I mean by the church being raised up, put back together, solidified before the place of safety even occurs. If you go to the book of Haggai, the two witnesses, Joshua and Zerubbabel, are admonished, they are instructed, and commanded to rebuild the church before Zerubbabel is raised as a signet to the nations in the last verse of the book. Build the church, that's the first job to be done. Once the scattering has occurred and humility reigns. Then it can be put back together and people won't fight. Then it can be put back together and will be a meek and humble people who seek the Lord and trust in the Lord, as Ephaniah 3 says. Haggai means festive and it is the sacrifice of Christ and his living active direction that leads to the rebuilding of the church just prior to the public witness of the two begins and is carried over into Zechariah 3 and 4. The message that begins and comes out of the middle of Haggai, time-wise, is Zechariah. It starts while Haggai is still prophesying. So the first job is get the church back together. And won't it be a festive, joyous thing to see the scattering, destruction cease, and unity and grace return among the brethren, never to be destroyed again, we already read, For this latter temple, constructed by the witnesses under Christ, will never be torn down and is going to carry through into the place of safety where the bride enters into her chamber and makes her final preparations until she meets her bridegroom. The timing of Haggai is just before the day of the Lord, Haggai 2.7. It says at that time he will shake the heavens and the earth. So this is just prior to the time the shaking begins. When that shaking begins, it's time for the church then to go to a place of safety. But it does appear to me, from putting these scriptures together in the order in which the work of the witnesses, which we anticipate, I think soon, is to be done. First to the church, feed the church, give oil to the church, build the church, construct the latter-day temple, and then the trouble comes. Maybe I'm not looking at this quite right, but I don't know what else to do with these scriptures otherwise. So, maybe there's some thinking that still needs to be done. I don't know. I'm just reading what they are supposed to do and trying to see the sequence in Haggai and Zechariah of how it is to occur. Isaiah's three warnings, along with the sequence of events laid out in them, ties directly with Haggai and Zechariah's instruction to the witnesses, now is not the time to preach the gospel to the world as a witness on a business-as-usual basis as some are trying to do and obviously beginning to fail at. It is time to shake the bonds of Babylon off our necks, to rise out of the dust as individuals, and don our holy garments and prepare to rule. That is our job right now. Preparing the bride is the cry. Awake! As the scattering is finishing, God will put the cup of trembling in other hands and rebuild us, gather us, and put us together. Then will be a time of great haste after that occurs, it appears to me. We have been in the scattering of the power of the holy people. We're still drinking the cup of his fury right now because we're still being scattered. It may happen to us right here. Are we any better than the others? No. We're just human beings, brethren. And we, too, are looking for leadership. We, too, are looking for direction from God. We, too, are sinners, for all have come short of the glory of God, have sinned. And we can't stand on a soapbox and say, we're better than someone else, or this little group is any better than any other little group. We're just a lifeboat trying to hold it together and trying to grow and overcome and shake the bands of Babylon off our necks so that we can be included when God begins to put his church back together again. I believe we're entering the final and major phases of the scattering. And John just mentioned a, a group that is scattering terribly and shattering right now in the announcement before the regathering of the church has to be soon after that, or there will be nothing left. And Christ says that the gates of the grave will not prevail against it, that his church will live forever. <clears throat> so this gathering is going to come, and it's going to come through the suffering, the death, the resurrection, the holiness, and the arm of strength of Jesus Christ, as we just read here in Isaiah 52 and 53. Isaiah 52, 11, Be you clean that bear the vessels of the eternal, Peter phrased it in 1 Peter 1.15, Be you holy as I am holy. And we're emphasizing that now on this last day of Unleavened Breads. Awake! Awake! Put on strength, O arm of the Lord. Awake, as in the ancient days, in the generations of old. Awake! Awake! Stand up, O Jerusalem, which is drunk at the hand of the Lord at the cup of his fury. Don't lay on the ground and snivel. Stand up. Awake, awake. Put on your strength, O Zion. Put on your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. Your work, your pain, your travail, your patience is not in vain. Put on your bridal clothes of holiness and be alert. Be responsive to every word, to every whim, to every desire, to every wish, to every thought of your bridegroom Jesus Christ.
1: Awake, arise, shine, for your light is come.